sometimes when we get to this point in the retreat, we can feel, it may be subtle, but we can feel a little uneasiness in the heart or even something stronger like terror. (laughs) And uh, you might think that it's unskillful, but (laughs) you maybe have heard this, but uh, the Buddha made a big deal of this uh, force in the mind, hiri otapa, this uh, wholesome regret, wholesome concern. And as we, because we have wisdom, as we look, uh, just naturally look out into the future, and we recognize the kind of uh, influences, what we'll see, what we'll hear, and we understand something about the mind that, you know, it codependently arises, like who we are depends on our environment. And so we know all kinds of things are going to happen once we leave this protected environment. And it isn't helpful to get tight, but it is helpful to be honest about the power of like how the heart, how the mind is affected by what we see, what we hear, what we think. It really matters. And that's, uh, that can be a kind of humility and a kind of protection. The Buddha called these forces in the mind, which very much relate to karma, which I'll talk a little bit about tonight. He talked about them as the guardians of the world, like not having that concern, like just sort of, yeah, I'll, I'm going to do this transition, big deal, is uh, in a way neglecting or not honoring the sensitivity that we've set in motion. And and this fact that I mentioned this afternoon, that it isn't easy being a sensitive being. We have a sensitive heart. We're a heart that is touched by experience over and over again, moment by moment, ceaselessly. Nothing really we can do about that. And then each time there's a sense impression, it like vibrates every uh, latent tendency that has anything to, looks anything like it, you know. So if something scary arises in my field of vision, then all the previous experiences of fear that have laid down something in the heart, body, mind, then they get activated to some degree. And so out in the world, what we call the world, you know, the non-IMS world, the non-being on retreat, in a safe, relatively safe, secluded environment, we just, uh, we know that a lot of those latent tendencies of the personality of the mind are going to get triggered, vibrating, and those latent tendencies are going to want to move into action. And of course, some of them will, and we'll learn from that, hopefully. So normally, this is a talk on wholehearted engagement without attachment. And normally we think of engagement as action, doing something, saying something. But that's uh, too simplistic, right? Because sometimes really bold action is just staying put, keeping quiet. And for some of us, 
that kind of action to keep quiet takes a lot more clarity, a lot more fearlessness, right? And for others of you, standing up, speaking up, stepping forward takes a lot more courageousness to do. So it really depends on our situation, depends on our conditioning. But the interesting thing from a Buddhist perspective about action, like how do I engage my life, is Buddhism, the way the Buddha taught, he's much more interested in well, what are the causes, what are the supporting causes for responding skillfully in my life, in my intimate relationship, my relationship with, your, with my pet. You know, maybe that's your intimate relationship. Or your work scene. Or maybe you have important causes that you care about. Looking at the racism in our culture, or looking at other injustices that really you feel compelled to engage. Or maybe you're raising kids or helping your aging parents or having creating a safe neighborhood where you live. So we normally think of Uh, you know, just because we're busy, we go right to the action. What would be skillful action? But with our practice, we realize that's one of the imponderables, like how to act skillfully. What, even in a relatively simple engagement, like you're going to go home and meet the person you share your home with, whoever that might be. What do I say? Somebody asked that in the hall this afternoon. You could spend a lot of time and tie yourself up into knots, figuring out exactly what you should say and the kind of body language. And, and it probably won't help much and it will probably be stressful thinking about it. Or you could be reflective about, well, what would, the, what would allow, what supporting causes would allow a skillful response when I walk in the door? What kind of attitudes or qualities of mind if they were to be present in the mind, would increase the probability of a wholesome response, saying something useful as I walk in the door. I've always liked this statement from Saida Utejaniya because he he repeats this teaching a lot that uh, he sums it up something like, wisdom is always interested in the causes. That's how you know wisdom is active in your mind. It's always interested in like how, to, how something wholesome gets set in motion, how something unwholesome can be supported, the, the letting go of it, the falling away of it can be supported. So instead of thinking, you know, in all the places in our life where we'd like the answer, You know, how should I respond skillfully? How should I engage this place skillfully? How should I divide up my time? What should I do? We can take it a step back and get interested in, well, what are the supporting causes for being a skillful, responsive, engaged human being? And we already know the answer, you know, the continuity of awareness The stability of awareness is the supporting cause for skill in the world. And it just keeps it really simple. And and somewhere in the text, you know, the Buddha, 
talks about how when a quality like mindfulness is strong and present, all of its friends, all of the other wholesome qualities have a tendency to also arise. So instead of feeling like you have to be a Buddhist scholar and do this complicated inventory of all the wholesome qualities, if you really work on the continuity and stability of awareness, recognizing the present moment, remembering to recognize the present moment, you'll start recognizing those wholesome qualities that are there. And you'll start to recognize in, in sometimes very surprising ways a really beautiful and skillful response. And you didn't have a plan. It's not like you knew what you were going to say, you knew what you were going to do in that messy or complicated place in your life. And uh, at the end of the intro class that I teach in Minneapolis several times a year, one of the last things I, I ask them to do while they're still in the uh, Dharma Hall with me is to pick a place in their life that's difficult, not the most difficult, but something that happens, shows up regularly in your life that's challenging. And feel free to do this right now. And instead of thinking, okay, how can I do it better? And I'm not saying that's useless. It can be useful to think about what should I say? How, how might I handle this person or this traffic situation that I don't like or having to wash my dishes or whatever it might be. But instead you can set a resolve and then you have to keep practicing that resolve. Like when you wake up in the morning, even though that situation isn't at hand now, at that time rather, you set again the resolve. When this arises, I want that mindfulness spell to go off in my heart as a reminder to set in motion what will be the causes for a skillful response. Instead of panicking, trying to think of what the skillful response should be, you bring mindfulness to the fore, as the Buddha says sometimes, right? And you walk bravely into the situation, whatever it is, with only one tool, the continuity, the stability of awareness, recognizing what's arising. Oh. It's like this, you know, there's fear. And this uh, experience of embodiment that I talked about at the beginning of the retreat is really helpful as a container for that intention to be mindfully aware, right? Because we tend to remember what awareness of the body looks and feels like. And if we're aware of the body, we're likely, more likely to be aware of the emotions, more likely to read, you know, visually and other, in what we hear, to read it in a more neutral, non-charged way, instead of interpreting it, what's going on around us in terms of our fear, or terms of our past history, but seeing it as it actually is, with more equanimity, more balance. And um, this, you know, basic supporting cause for skillful engagement in the world, stability of awareness, we talk about as a dance, as a, the working together of two qualities of the mind, calm 
and insight. And I think Steve talked about it in the Q&A session this afternoon. And one simile that I find really useful, how the way we practice, especially on this retreat, where we're developing the stability of mind in the context of insight practice. And a simile is a honed and heavy axe. Maybe you've heard that. Uh, One of the teachers that comes to Common Ground usually every year, uh, Ajahn Chandako, he's an abbot of a monastery in New Zealand near Auckland. And he wrote a little booklet uh, based on the Buddhist teachings about insight and calm and how those the practices of insight, vipassana, and the practices of calm, how they are meant to work together. That insight, wisdom, liberating wisdom, comes for that, from that dynamic. And the image that's used in the tradition is a, a honed and heavy axe. If you have a really, really, really sharp axe, like a razor blade, but no weight, you know, it's really sharp but it's not going to be very effective cutting down the tree. And if you have a really, really heavy axe, like a sledgehammer, but no sharpness, it's not going to be very helpful in cutting down a tree. But if your axe has both weight and sharpness, it's pretty functional for the task of cutting down the tree. And so, you know, the image is the sharpness is the insight, the quality of investigation, the valuing, the underlying truth of things, sort of this, it's a desire for the truth of the present moment to reveal itself. And it comes from, you know, this investigative, this wisdom side of the practice comes from a humility. And that hiri otapa that I mentioned earlier, because we know moving through life without wisdom, without understanding, is dangerous. We sincerely, out of compassion, desire a deeper understanding of how it all works, what we mean by karma, the understanding the conditional unfolding. And in particular, we're interested in the conditional unfolding of how suffering arises and how it ceases in the heart. And it's this engaging life with awareness or this honed and heavy acts, right? A mind that's stable and alert, interested, bright. And this mind is expressing its desire to understand. Not, of course, cognitively or thinking about it, but meeting it, being intimate with the conditional unfolding, how things unfold. This is where we learn about what is skillful and what is unskillful. And the Buddha, and in the tradition, this is sort of the first wisdom that arises in the mind, where instead of feeling helpless, we realize that there is a way to participate in the moment. We can either be skillful or unskillful. And the only way we'll know is if we're mindfully aware. And then every time like we talked about this afternoon, every time we learn because we made a mistake or we had some success and things lightened up, the situation turned out well, then there's that feedback. Okay, this is how that played out. This is how that unfolded. There were these attitudes in mind, right? these kinds of intentions in the heart. And then 
it all went to hell. So we like connect the dots. Okay, because by definition, if things get really tight and unbearable, then what something about how it played out was unskillful. And if the heart frees up, things feel lighter and freer, then that's what we mean by skillful. How the mind showed up, how the mind participated, engaged, was skillful. Because, how do I know? Because of the karmic fruit of whatever just happened. No, it's not, I mean, there's always a lot at play. But there's enough, you know, we have enough, when we have enough stability of awareness, we can begin to really read this. It's interesting how um, often the question or comment comes up about uh, the teachings of the Buddha somehow being about passivity or that if we practice in a way that leads to non-attachment, if we value non-attachment, that somehow we're going to end up all alone or end up uh, living you know, we imagine some kind of flat, desolate, unexciting life where we just let like the human doormat and just let everything happen and somehow don't care about suffering around us, don't care about the joys around us. But one thing I'm sure you're noticing right now, and you certainly notice it as you walk out the door and go back to your homes, is you'll notice how sensitive you are. Everything stands out, joys and sorrows, ordinary experiences, things just, the mind, the heart is just more sensitive. And I actually like the word touched, the heart is touched by experience. I like using the language of embodiment sometimes, making it more visceral because it uh, can correct the shadow that we're trying to be untouched, that wisdom is somehow figuring out how not to be touched by life, as opposed to insight and wisdom, uh, allowing there to arise a heart or mind that's not afraid of being touched, not afraid of joys and sorrows. So what's sorrow when we're, what's the experience of loss, for example, when we're not afraid, not averse to feel it, to let it move through us. This is, you know, these kinds of questions are important to reflect on because one of the things we should be confident of that we don't know the path. We, f- we figure the path out as we follow the path. One of the things you can get talking to people who've been practicing for a while or teachers is, you know, how many times along their path they became clear about what the path was. Oh, this is what I'm doing. This is what it's about. And a lot of what happens sometimes in one-on-one in small groups is somebody sort of doing this true confession that I, I just never have understood the practice up until now. 
And that's sort of true and sort of not true. Sometimes we are dismissive of how much we were learning. And because of that learning, now there can be the shift and we have a more refined understanding of what this path is all about. The Buddha talks about it as the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion in the mind, or the mind not pushed around by greed, anger, and delusion, the mind not confused by it, it not being a problem in the mind. So what would that, you know, in terms of engaging our busy or complicated lives or difficult lives or happy lives, you know, the whole spectrum, would that be sufficient, you know, Would it be possible to live our life without the mind being governed by greed, anger, and delusion, without being identified with the greed, anger, and delusion that maybe still has the tendency to want to show up, but no, the mind isn't confused. Do we need greed? Do we need anger and delusion to live our life, to do what needs to be done? You know, sometimes, as I was mentioning earlier, we, we think we wouldn't have the strength or the power to do what needs to be done. That we're dependent on uh, these forces to engage the world. And I think a lot of that comes from not having, having taken a close and systematic study of the wholesome qualities of mind. And also a real misunderstanding of what power is. As I found this wonderful quote from Martin Luther King that Gina Sharp sent to a group I'm part of. Some of you know Gina. She's a longtime teacher, insight meditation teacher. And this is from Martin Luther King. Power is the ability to achieve purpose. It is the strength required to bring about social, political, or economic changes. In this sense, power is not only desirable, but necessary in order to implement the demands of love and justice. One of the greatest problems of history is that the concepts of love and power are usually contrasted as polar opposites. Love is identified with resignation of power and power with the denial of love. What is needed in in What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love, implementing the demands of justice. Justice at its best is love, correcting everything that stands against love. Isn't that great? And I think it's really important as your practice develops, you get a deeper sense of what the path is, you begin to uh, get interested in the experience of maybe what we can call power, the power to engage, the power to speak up, and that that power doesn't come from fixed ideas like I know what I should be doing. Like maybe that power can also come when we know we don't know, but we sense the beauty the wholesomeness of the motivation. The motivations that come from these right 
attitudes, these skillful attitudes of kindness and letting go, renunciation and harmlessness. The Buddha taught what's called uh, a gradual path or a gradual training, I should say. And uh, he gives this wonderful simile, just as the ocean has a gradual shelf, a gradual slope, a gradual inclination with a sudden drop off only after a long stretch. In the same way, this doctrine and discipline, right? This path of awakening has a gradual training, a gradual performance, a gradual progression with a penetration, deep insight only after a long stretch. And uh, another related discourse, he talks about like, this is one example of that, the gradualness of how the the path develops. There's the case where when conviction, confidence has arisen, one visits a teacher. Having visited, right, you go on a retreat. Having gone on a retreat, one grows close. Having grown close, one lends an ear, right? Kind of check people out on Dharma seed or Maybe you've checked out the Buddhist tradition, the teachings for a time until you start really listening, you really study. One hears the Dharma. Having heard the Dharma, one remembers it. You hear it enough. You take it in enough from a number of different people usually, number of different books, until it, at least on an intellectual level, becomes your own. Like you can bring it to mind. And you can then, and he goes on, you know, you can begin to reflect on it comes to an agreement through pondering, right? How the teachings connect with your actual experience. There being an agreement through pondering, the teachings desire arises, right? To sort of follow the path to the end. When desire has arisen, one is willing, right? Willing to do what? Willing to be persistent, willing to start again, willing to remember to recognize the present moment. Right? Uh, one contemplates, having contemplated, one makes an exertion. Having made an exertion, one realizes with the body the ultimate truth, and having penetrated it with discernment, sees it. And so here's the gradual training that the Buddha used, and uh, I think it's really useful for us to reflect on it in terms of our home life, our intimate relationships our work lives, earning a living, engaging with communities, local, the whole world, being a good citizen, addressing the injustices that we see. So the gradual training begins with generosity. And this is just the beginning, you know, for When you think of an animal, which we are, part of our conditioning is really on the level of all the other animals that we share this planet with. And, uh, you know, sort of we use that word, being an animal, to mean that our primary concern is survival. Getting food, finding a mate, having shelter, you know, staying away from danger. So to get a sense to just begin the path. The Buddha would teach about generosity. He would just encourage people to explore what that sets in motion, like the heaviness of stinginess, the self-obsession of stinginess, 
and just to begin to explore what generosity feels like. You know, initially we give away what we don't want, that's the start, instead of hoarding what we don't use, don't need, don't even want, we say, I'm not using it, I'm gonna give it away. And surprisingly, that's hard. Even that level of generosity is hard. And then, you know, we graduate from that level and we explore the level of like sharing something. I see this is still hard sometimes even at home with my wife and we have a dessert and <laughs> one of us cuts it and it's, it's really hard to get it exactly in half. <laughs> when and I are, you know, we're being Buddhist, we're frugal. So we'll go to our local restaurant, which happens to be just down the block from us, and they have good desserts, and we'll buy one, you know, but it's like, it's just hard to get it exactly right. <laughs> and I, I just notice it's like, uh, just part of that business-like attitude of, well, we got to get it right. And I just noticed that, you know, if it is a little off, which side I want. <laughs> <laughs> and it's easy to kind of you know, sort of make a joke where you, you know, you want me to have the bigger half or you're such a generous person. (laughs) So stinginess is a real thing. And uh, learning to loosen the screws is really interesting. And it's for people like us who are interested in Buddhism enough to get on a nine-day retreat, it can seem like trivial practice, really getting serious about generosity and all the little and big ways out in our life. And there's a more advanced kind of generosity where you give what you don't want to give, right? And there are times you should experiment with that too. I had a, I mean, one of the few things that uh, people serious about Buddhist practice, you know, they eventually get themselves a good meditation shawl. And one of the first times I had a good meditation, I mean, that really nice light wall (laughs) that doesn't, doesn't scratch. It's amazing stuff. I forget what it's called. It kesh- Do you remember? Pashmina. Huh? Pashmina. Oh, Pashmina. <laughs> Whoa, Steve knows. <laughs> really, anybody in the business knows. <laughs> so I had it, and we had this visiting monk from Sri Lanka, a, a wonderful elder in the tradition and really great uh, teacher. And I was going to drive him back. It was a really cold Minnesota winter night. And I had an older car at the time. And I thought, I'll grab my shawl and he can use it in the car. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so I said, here, <laughs> use this in the car. And uh, being a wise monk and, and it's sharp, he says, you know, oh, are you giving this to me? Right? And in that moment, I realized what I had done. It's like I wasn't clear, you know. Maybe you want to use this while we're driving to the place you're staying. (laughs) And I'm so glad in that moment I had some stability of mind. (laughs) And I could see and just, because I was just at a Dharma talk, you know, a sit in a Dharma talk. So, and he was, he's an impressive teacher. And, uh, and I saw a flash through my mind, but uh, the stability mind, like the, the very real pain of loss, like, Letting that go. There it was. I'd never had, they're expensive, by the way. <laughs> and, and in a matter of I don't, maybe a second and a half at the most or whatever, 
I was able to say with sincerity, no, this is for you. Right? Would, you know, would you like this? Would this be helpful? And he accepted it. And it was really, it felt so nice to give something away that I didn't want to give away. It felt really good. So there were, now you can't always plan these times, but they sh- seem to show up with regular frequency where the world, you, you know, nature, your circumstances conspire, where there's this opportunity to give something that you don't want to give, or at least share what you have in some kind of equal way. Hey, we're doing this together. Let me share this with you or share this. I have this, but I'm happy to share it with you. So, and you can just see that when we do this, when we make this an an engagement, like, and it's not, again, it's not about having a plan to be generous. It's about the supporting cause. What's the supporting cause for generosity? Being aware of an opportunity to give, right? It's that continuity, that stability of awareness. And then we'll notice these places to give things that we don't want anyway, (laughs) these places to share equally, and these places that arise every once in a while to give what we don't want to give. But then we learn, actually, it felt so good to give. And it's not that, you know, he needed that shawl. What felt so good, I think, is the heart realizing it's not dependent. It's like a little glimpse, teeny weeny glimpse into the joy of Nibbana, into the release of Nibbana. Because the heart, even in this very limited way, realizes that non-clinging feels good. The heart, the idea of me not being dependent on that thing, releasing that fixation feels good. And that's just the beginning, right, of this gradual path that the Buddha taught. And then the next stage is um, beginning to bring awareness to places in our lives where we can experiment with restraint. We could say something, we could gossip, we could say this thing about somebody, but we decide not to. We could take that pen, it's been sitting on that cabinet for three days, the person is never going to come back. We have a rule at Kamagan, which is a pretty busy uh, city center in Minneapolis, in Kamagan Meditation Center where I teach. And um, it's amazing how many things people leave there. I mean, like really nice coats, really nice shawls. (laughs) 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 And an unbelievable number of water bottles. I mean, it's just amazing. I, I joke, but it's not really a joke. We could literally go in the business of selling water bottles. <laughs> and, uh, but we made a rule that, that we uh, only keep a few things. We keep umbrellas. We keep yoga mats. We do teach yoga at the center. And uh, umbrellas, yoga mats. There's one other thing. I'm forgetting now what it is. Everything else, if it doesn't get picked up, you know, I forget what it is, two months, there's a volunteer then brings it to um, some store that sells it and then supports some charity, um, like a goodwill. And it's just been interesting to sort of, you know, look at that tendency to take what hasn't been given. So most of you know we've been chanting every morning the five precepts 
We'll change it tomorrow morning, the third precept, so that instead of celibacy, it's undertaking the training not to harm with our sexual activities, our sexual um, practices. And, um, but the thing about these trainings are with awareness, we realize they never end. When we have just a super, superficial understanding of the precepts, it's kind of like, I just need to practice non-harming better than most of you, and then I can feel good about it. You know? But when our practice of the precepts of sila, this practice of integrity, practice of non-remorse, then we realize there's really no end. Like where do we, uh, when do we get to the place where our thoughts, our words, and our actions cause no harm? Right? I don't think we ever get there. So the idea of the training is not to get to the end of it, but to engage it because it's enlivening, it's liberating, right? So that, so then now we can just reflect together all the places in our life, like when you do your taxes, you know, and all the ways, like, am I freely giving the taxes or am I uh, sort of rolling the dice, like, what are the odds that I'm ever going to get audited about this thing? Or even if I do get audited, that this will show up or this will catch somebody's eye. Right? I've made a, I made a practice because, you know, nobody, and especially if you don't agree with what the government does with our money, um, isn't, it easy, isn't it interesting how we objectify them as other? You know, <laughs> you know those guys, that government who spends our money, you know, that sort of dualistic. So I've really worked on that so that when I pay my taxes, it's like I think about things that I really want to support that that money supports. And I don't try to be, I don't try to bend the rules. I try to be within the spirit. And now we use an accounting uh, and they're like, they're so nudgy. I mean, they're like so by the books. It's amazing. But I, it, it bothers me because it's, you know, it takes a lot of time and effort, but I feel really clean. Like I'm not trying to get away with anything, even in that, you know, place that we feel so justified. Like if we can get a break, we'll, we'll take it. And there's so many other places where we can explore these five precepts, uh, speech especially is such an important place. And it's not, you know, usually the translation is undertaking the training to refrain from speaking what isn't true. But, you know, often it's, it includes, I think Steve even mentioned it in one, of the, in one of his talks or answers about not using a harsh tone or not engaging in idle speech or not using words as a weapon to harm. And now it's very, this is very useful for engaging the world. Where do we justify? It's like probably we wouldn't talk about a family member. Maybe you do, but, you know, there are certain people we wouldn't talk about in in mean-spirited ways. But how about politicians that we don't agree with? I mean, it's just so interesting, like when you watch humor. And, uh, I mean, I like uh, satire because some of the most intelligent discussions about how we organize ourselves as a culture 
happens with comedians doing satire. But what I don't like is it just seems culturally okay to put people down, to be hurtful. And I don't, I don't know, maybe you have to do that when you do satire, but I'd like to think that we can make fun of how, who we are, how we are, without being mean-spirited. Or we can understand the tendencies of the mind to be greedy, to be fearful, to act out of ignorance and anger and, you know, delusion, all the ways, all the little, little bubbles we can live in. And it's, you know, when we step outside, it's, it is funny to realize that about our mind, but we're not different. I mean, maybe we see some things, but there's some things we don't see. This is from the Dalai Lama. I love this passage. I found this years and years ago. At the end of a talk, someone from the audience asked the Dalai Lama, why didn't you fight back against the Chinese? The Dalai Lama looked down, swung his feet just a bit, then looked back up at us and said with a gentle smile, well, war is obsolete, you know. And then after a few moments, his face grave, he said, of course, the mind can rationalize fighting back. But the heart, the heart would never understand. Then you would be divided in yourself, the heart and the mind, and the war would be inside you. And some of you might have heard this, uh, but uh, once in an interview with uh, Gandhi, he was just asked about, you know, dealing with the enemy, you know, the British people, or the British government, rather, in the India's quest for independence way back in the 20s, 30s, 40s. And uh, he gave this great answer. He said, you know, yeah, the British government, that's a formidable, you know, adversary, enemy, but I can, but we understand each other. We can work with each other. The Indian people, much, much harder. My mind, almost impossible to work with. <laughs> Isn't that a great answer? Because we think the enemy, you know, is out there. We always want to externalize it. So just in terms of sila practice, integrity, it also includes how we take care of ourselves, how we treat ourselves. Like maybe we're really good at not using a harsh tone, not lying, not slandering somebody else, but... When no one's listening, what is the internal dialogue like? What kind of language are we using there? So first engagement is just the exploration of generosity. We bring awareness to places in our lives where there's a possibility of generosity and we continue to track it and we notice the effect and notice the lightness because as I mentioned, uh, moments of generosity is the mind realizing it doesn't have to cling. It's the same with moments of restraint. When we hold back, when we want to hit back, we want to use our words, we want to act out our sexual energy in a way that manipulates somebody, um, whatever it might be. We want to intoxicate our mind because it feels good without concern about 
how much more likely it is that we're going to act out and harm somebody because the mind's intoxicated. So these are why we have the precepts, because then we start to see with awareness moments where restraint might be liberating. And it's always good to put it in terms of liberating, not like, oh, I should restrain myself, I should be generous, but like, oh, here's an opportunity for restraint. Let's see if it's actually liberating. Oh, I'm so glad I held back. Maybe not in the first few moments when the, the sort of force of aversion, the force of wanting revenge is sort of chomping at the bit, but we're restraining ourselves. But then later, in hindsight, we go, boy, I am so glad I didn't say that. I mean, think about all the things we had an impulse to do. If we had done those things, we'd either be dead or in jail. Really. I mean, don't you think that's true? If we had actually followed through with some of the impulses that we've had. I mean, I remember, like, with my brothers and my sisters, when we're having fights, I mean, it's like, you want revenge. You want them to hurt. (laughs) And a lot of times we're only limited by our four-year-old, five-year-old body, you know, when we're hitting back, which is fortunate. Now, here's the interesting thing in terms of this gradual training. The next training is called heaven. Kind of like that one. Because when we are wholeheartedly engaging generosity, we're a good student, and the continuity of mindfulness is revealing moments where generosity is available, and we act on it, and we get the fruit. And the same thing with moments where restraint would be appropriate, and we act on the restraint, and we get the karmic fruit. And then what starts showing up is heaven. Right Now you can think of this being reborn in a really pleasant place, you know, someday you should read about the realms of existence in the Buddhist cosmology. Ajahn Punadamo, somebody who teaches here from time to time, is like four or five hundred pages into his book on Buddhist cosmology, so someday it will be available. And uh, you can read about these different realms, but you don't need to concern yourself about Buddhist cosmology because we get reborn into nice times our life starts to work better for periods of time, right? People like us, people treat us well, good things happen, it's not all bad. Now, for some people, there's less of the heaven and more of the hell, and for other people, there's more of the heaven and less of the hell. Clearly, that's the case. But when heaven shows up for us, how do we engage it? What is the proper way to engage it? Should we feel guilty when we have some affluence we have some health, we have some fame, you know, the, the positive half of the eight worldly wins, gain and loss, so the gain part, pain and pleasure, the pleasure part, fame and disrepute, the fame, praise and blame, the praise. So when we have the good things, should we feel guilty? So this is like, this is another engagement. What do we do with pleasant experience? Somebody gives you a sweet. Linda, the executive director, uh, gave us a bar. We had to share it. (laughs) We we didn't divide it equally. I don't think anybody really knows who had more. 
which is probably one of the fruits of our practice <laughs> that we didn't write when she gave it to us, divide it into exact three equal parts. <laughs> but anyway, it's good. It's a good chocolate bar. <laughs> and it's just interesting to look at what we do with sense delights. Because even though it's true that it's easy to get attached to pleasant experience, to fame, for example, but being afraid of fame doesn't mean that, I mean, that's not necessarily the healthy response to the tendency to get attached. What would be the appropriate response to avoid getting attached to pleasant things that come but don't last very long, right? That's the problem with pleasant things. They don't last very long, but there's still something. So again, it's the engagement. Like if we want a wise response to pleasantness, we have to be mindfully aware. We, have to, we need that stability and continuity of awareness because then if we act out with pleasantness and hold on to it, hoard it or something like that, we'll see if we track, if we have that continuity of awareness, we'll see how much suffering there is. I gave a, a presentation to the staff about the drawbacks of sensuality a couple of days ago. And in one of the suttas, the Buddha talks like, and even if you do have a lot, if you become wealthy, let's say, then you have to worry about the kings and the people taking it away from you. You got to protect it. And so this is the thing with when good things happen, what do we do with it? How do we relate to it? Well, with awareness, we find the way to really receive it without mistakenly think that it's more than what it is. It is what it is. Pleasant is pleasant, but it isn't more than what it is. And how to have that relationship when you go home and you finally get you know, the beverage of choice, your beverage of choice, the way you like it, in the glass you like, you know, with your favorite media device in front of you, (laughs) on your chair, right? And then what is the mind, what is the skillful way? See, this is much higher. It's gradual, it's getting more complicated, or maybe not more complicated, but uh, the thing about pleasant experiences because it's pleasant, it tends, the pleasantness tends to uh, disengage the practice intention because I'm practicing because things aren't pleasant, right? Because I'm suffering. So when things feel good, I don't have to practice. This is a common uh, obstacle in practice when there are more wholesome states, more pleasant states, uh, we can feel a little like, lost in our practice because we've stopped being interested. We've stopped recognizing the present moment. Oh, it's pleasant. It's pleasant like this. It's just this. It's not the story I have. That's just thinking being known. The pleasantness is just this very real but ephemeral experience that's arising. And you see, this sets up the next stage in the gradual training, which is, and I mentioned this a few seconds ago, the drawbacks. Now, this is actually uh, the world, you know, our daily life, having a job, 
having even a really good relationship with a partner, family, a pet, the community, even relatively wholesome uh, worldly things like family, partner, home, comfortable chair, enough money to take care of most needs, it starts to, the drawbacks start to stand out or the limitations start to stand out. So how to engage that? It's easy to start telling ourselves a story like I need more because I'm seeing the limitations of my two and a half year old iPhone, you know? Steve has a newer version of the iPhone. <laughs> it's a little thinner. It's, it's got this, it's not like black or white. It's got this other color. And it, I think the screen's a little bigger. I noticed it. I mean, that, that's the point. It's not, <laughs> I'm not saying Steve's attached. I'm just saying I noticed it, right? <laughs> but what I could have, like what awareness could be revealing is my mind's beginning to notice the drawbacks of a two and a half year old iPhone, right? Or whatever it is, the drawbacks of having a body. Have you noticed that? Like a body that operates at 98 degrees and uh, it needs to sort of release heat to sort of maintain that. And then when it's hot and especially sticky like this, the evaporative principle doesn't work very well and it gets really hard to, right? So. Oh yeah, it's not easy having a body when it's like this or when it's this age or when it's in, you know, any number of ailments that we can have. So how do we deal with this perception, this uh, deepening understanding of the drawbacks of all sense experiences, even good relationships? to realize at some point in the relationship, and now it's really maturing, this understanding that she is not going to make me happy. It's so ringingly clear to me now that my wife is not there to make me happy. My cat isn't there. I've tried. <laughs> now we, have, we had an older cat, and then it died at home after 18 or 19 years, and now we have a new, really alive cat, just wants to play. And it's great, but it doesn't make me happy. It really doesn't. And uh, we have a, finally, uh, we have this amazing little house and it just, we've sort of done some renovations and it's really comfortable and it's close to where I, I teach. And, but it doesn't make me happy. It really doesn't. And Minneapolis is a really great city as cities go. It's pretty progressive. Arts are great, good people. We live right in the middle of the town. It's kind of close to things, relatively diverse neighborhood, interesting neighborhood. And it doesn't make me happy. And then it just starts to dawn on the mind. You know, as I engage the reality of drawbacks with mindful awareness, stability, I'm, I don't have any opinion, right? Awareness doesn't have an opinion. It just wants to recognize the present moment as it is. And so we're engaging that and we're purposefully not spinning out into some sort of depressive, oh, poor me, get me out of here, or I wish I had more and then it wouldn't feel like it isn't sufficient because now I've got a phone like this or a car like that or a 
new partner or, you know, or this or that. And then that leads to the engagement of renunciation where the mind begins. It's just the beginning, right? So this is an engagement in life. So this is what always uh, seems confusing to people like, what does renunciation look like out in the world? And this is, I think, uh, why we need teachings. We need to understand these wholesome qualities. So just as a full circle to, to end the evening, this circle of giving and receiving, which I think is really the integration of compassion, joy, generosity, engagement. It's really the, uh, the expression of this maturing of uh, renunciation. So we're engaging our life of duties, responsibilities, needing to make choices. But see, now this engaging of the drawbacks has matured into a, a deepening. Remember, it's a gradual development for most people where the mind is beginning to intuit a happiness not based on getting the sense experiences that we want and getting rid of the ones we don't want, but the mind is beginning to intuit what Steve talked about last night, the release of Nibbana or the release of the unconditioned, or I like what Ajahn Chah calls it, the reality of non-grasping. Now, this isn't the full awakening experience. But before the full awakening experience, the mind or the heart begins to catch the scent or have the taste of freedom. Because it's not that hard to get the taste. Because is there anybody in the room that doesn't know the taste of grasping? We all know the taste of grasping. The heart being tight. I need this to happen. I need this retreat to be over. I don't want to go home. I mean, we know what grasping feels like. So the flavor of freedom is not that. It's the release of that. The heart free of any of that obstruction. And so engaging renunciation is beginning to consider that I can be a parent. I can be a lover. I can have a job. I can care about racial injustice. But... The happiness isn't about how things play out. The happiness is about what's unconditioned. It it isn't something that comes and goes. It's the non-grasping that's the refuge, not making things work out the way we want. So let's say something that seems intractable, like the Middle East or global warming, or even, sadly to say, you know, because a lot of us, mostly white people think that we did the racial justice thing back in the 60s or something like that. And so engaging some of these systemic problems that are really hard to uncover, really hard to look at how we're all part of the ignorance that continues and the suffering that continues from that ignorance, that our engagement is like the heart is... uh, intuiting a happiness, a freedom, a release, so that we can give ourselves to these messy things because we're not, our happiness, our freedom isn't dependent on fixing it. 
And you know what? That allows us to see it clearly, more clearly, more deeply, because we're not desperate to fix it. And we can really show up. We can show up to our kids. We can show up to our partners. We can show up to these problems in our society that don't seem to go away. And we can show up to taking care of our parents and taking care of this body as it ages and get sick. And there's more to the path, but uh, Steve talked about the Four Noble Truths yesterday, and that's what rounds out this gradual training that the Buddha taught. So we, in terms of going home, we engage our life by bringing awareness to see the possibility of moments of generosity, the possibility of moments of restraint, the possibility of moments of engaging with what's pleasant, what's heavenly, with skill, and really learning what's skillful and not skillful in all these places, engaging as we naturally, unavoidably notice the drawbacks of our life, of everything that shows up in our life. Like, like uh, Joe Quebec calls it, the promise that's never kept. We see that, you fall in love, and then you settle into the relationship. It's never going to make us happy. And we start engaging that. Like, instead of thinking that's a problem, that the relationship isn't making us happy, or my body isn't making me happy, or my home isn't making me happy, we realize that's just the truth of sense experience. It's not here to make us happy. That's not the purpose of the world, to make us happy. The purpose of the world, from a spiritual point of view, is to show us or to support us in this path of letting go. And that's the engagement with renunciation. So let's leave it here. Just take a few seconds and let go of the words. And we have time for movement practice. And many hours left to our retreat. Just being really grateful for the time we have. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.